Well, greetings. I feel like I haven't preached to you in quite a while. As a matter of fact, it's been all the way back at the first Sunday of December when we talked about the Word made flesh. But I haven't been lackadaisical or lying around. I preached this past Sunday over in Georgia. So uh, don't think for a moment I've been lazy because I haven't. That song, I Got Saved, folks. Man, that's such a good song, isn't it? Undone by the mercy of the Lord. Undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'll tell you why you are saved today. It's because the power of the love of God is so much more powerful than your sin. That's the only reason that you are saved. And we're going to be able to look at that this morning. Make your way to John 3.16. You ought to be able to thump it real hard. Your Bible. It ought to spring open to the greatest book, greatest text in the Bible. John 3.16. It's one of my favorites as well. I don't know if you noticed this morning, but on Fox News we saw that Facebook had to apologize to Franklin Graham. And he's now moved out of Facebook banishment. And they put him back on Facebook because they excommunicated him because of hate speech. And the only thing he said was that there's no way to heaven except through Jesus. Now folks, I want to remind you that we're not going to be loved by a world that knows that we have an exclusivity about ourselves and that exclusivity is the fact that the Bible tells us that there's absolutely no way to heaven except through Jesus Christ the Lord. It's not a popular message but it's the biblical message and as Franklin Franklin Graham said this morning I'm not going to back down on that. You know he is so much stronger I'll just be honest than his own dad was. Here's a guy who is uncompromisingly Telling us and the world every time he gets an opportunity that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. The only way to be saved. And praise God for a man like Franklin Graham who will keep saying it. For centuries, the verse that you're about to read has been the most well-known and loved of all the verses in the Bible. It's hard to imagine an announcement that is absolutely so simple, yet so profound The verse has 24 words in the ESV. 19 of these words are monosyllables or single syllable words. And there are five matching pairs of words or terms in the verse. God, Son, loved, gave, world, whoever or whosoever, believe and have and perish and everlasting life. It's the story of the Bible in one verse. Here we find the greatest love story ever told. And that's actually the title of the sermon. For God so loved the world. This verse is for me. It's for you. It's for your neighbor. It's the gospel of the good news that we must also take to the nations. The great reformer Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. If the remainder of the Bible were lost and we only had one verse preserved, it contains enough gospel to save the entire world. It does. This verse is not preached too often. You know why? Because it's the despair of most preachers because when you've read the verse, you've said just about everything. I mean, how do you improve upon John 3, 16? I did, however, read once that it was either Spurgeon or Moody that preached an entire year On John 3.16. Isn't that amazing? You think, how in the world can you do it? I probably could. (laughs) I probably could. 
especially if I broke it down and dwelt on it a long time. Wallace Austin said, if I had only one sermon to preach and the whole world to preach it to, I would preach John 3.16. Here it is, John 3.16. Let's back up and get a running start. John 3.14. The Bible says to us, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So under the title, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told, let's dive in. First, if you've got a bulletin, you see the sermon outline there or paper that you can grab coming into the auditorium each week. If not, you can follow along on the overhead. But The greatest love story ever told is the story of a sovereign person. Now, I should say God, right? But I'm doing alliteration today. So I need a person. He is God in one, right? Three persons. So he is the sovereign person. The text says, for God. You know, folks, salvation begins with God, not man. And so we're dealing with God here. And the first word in the verse is the biggest word in the universal languages of men. The word God. The very text follows suit with the entire writing of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation regarding an assumption. And the assumption is God exists. Nowhere in the Bible is there any t- an attempt to try to prove that God exists. It's taken as a given because it's a fact. So understanding this assumption of God's existence, uh, does it, it doesn't ever try to prove God's existence, but what it does say is that man is a fool. A man is a fool if he says there is no God. Psalm 14 verse 1. Did you know that atheism should never be allowed to stand on its own as a mere confession? Did you know that atheism can be evaluated by its results, and its consequences. Y'all do know that, right? Just look around. The real tragedy of our time in the Western civilization is this connection between the, uh, an atheistic philosophy and how it evolves into hedonism and violence and the thousands and thousands of plagues that are the inevitable results of a godless society, but our society at large deliberately ignores the consequences. But we see it, and it's, it's unavoidable, it's inevitable, that when you have an attitude that God does not exist, number one, you're a fool according to the Bible. Number two, there are results and consequences to that that will be bared out in society. Galatians 6, 7 reminds us that do not be, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that shall he also reap. And when an entire national community is planting seeds of selfishness and and sinfulness, and there's no consensus of opinions uh, going on in the world about what's right and what's wrong, what's going to happen? Nothing will change the harvest that is coming our way. Not only is that true nationally, but it's also true individually. But back to our main point. The Bible presents the existence of God as self-evident proof. And it will not prove anything to the person who stubbornly believes or stubbornly refuses to believe. 
It's the way the Bible presents our God. It's an assumption that He absolutely exists. And if someone is in disbelief, they're going to stubbornly stay in that predicament until the God of eternity gives them eyes to see. This verse also gives us the assurance of what kind of God we have. Not only the assumption that He exists for God. You see why Spurgeon could preach on this for a year now, right? For God, not only is there the assumption that He exists, but what about the assurance of the kind of God that we have? Aren't you thankful we have a God of love? That's the assurance. If there's one thing you can know about our God according to this verse, is that our God is love. He is way, way more than that, correct? And that's what's hurting our society at large. We feel like our God is someone that could be held and cuddled and petted. I got news for you. This God, you may lose your arm if you try to pet him. You you do understand how holy and righteous this God is. And ultimately, as you move through John 3.16, you'll see what it costs in order for you to be right with God. But the fact is, we're dealing with a God who is absolutely holy. But in this verse, it tells us that this God, in intrinsic in His nature, is the fact that God is love. 1 John 4.8 tells us definitively that God is love. We must greatly correct our conception of love if we're going to truly understand, the God, understand God's kind of love. God deals, God's ideals for us are usually quite different than our ideals than our ambitions or our desires. God's love is bent on far more than our happiness and our comfort and our contentment. The love of God in John 3.16 is not an idle sentiment like we just throw around that word a lot, right? Love you. And it's usually driven by sentimentality and emotionalism. However, the love of God is vigorously active. In other words, there's no understanding of this love unless you think about what was given. So God's love is always active. It is volitional. It's an act of the will. So we need to take that in consideration. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, is a God of love. Aren't you thankful for that? He's the greatest lover and the greatest provider. He's the one who takes the initiative in order to save us. Left to yourself, you would never come to God. The Bible says no one seeks after God. Romans 3. Apart from the love of God reaching out to us, He initiates salvation. Adam and Eve did not come to God in the garden after their sin. God came down. God came down to the garden to remedy man's situation. So Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's active, is it not? The one who loves us is not just anyone. The one who loves us is the God of eternity. The omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, infinite, sovereign Lord of the universe acted on our behalf, doing for us What we could not do for ourselves. That's a sovereign Lord. That's your first point. You did good. Number two. The greatest love story ever told is the story of a supreme passion. The Bible says, for God so loved. A supreme passion. The word so is 
or means to such a degree or in such a manner. Some of your modern translations will say, in this manner God loved. Why is it saying it that way? Because the word so has to do with degree. It's actually a measurement word. It could be translated to this very great degree. So, because it is God who so loved, the degree is not only uh, measurable, but it's infinite. Because it flows from the heart of God. The word love, again, is an action word. It's not an abstract concept, abstract concept like warm fuzzies or sentimental emotion. That's not the Greek word here. The Greek word here is love that is a choice. It's a decision. It's an act of the will whereby you seek another person's best interest. And it personally costs you to do so. Folks, that's why marriage is the gospel made visible. Marriage is the quintessential understanding of Christ and His love for you. And the, and, the, and, and the church's response to the Lord is the wife's response to the husband. See then that husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submitting to your husbands. See folks, that kind of love costs. And some of you guys will say, Amen. Some of you ladies will say, Amen. Right? Two sinners living under the same roof, but you're living out the gospel. You're living out the gospel of Jesus Christ as a husband and as a wife. The supreme passion. You put their needs first. And that's what Jesus did for you. It is not interested in what it can get, but what it can give. That's true biblical love. 1 John 4.10 says this. In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Satisfaction for our sins. 1 John 4.19, we love him because, say it, he first loved us. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the difference between the multiple uh, definitions of love. Which would be eros and philos and storge and agape. Just narrow it down to three biblically. We'd be dealing with eros, philos, and agape. And just thinking about those definitions of what love means, is, it's really simple. Philo, uh, eros is all take. And it says, I love me and I want you. That's the basis of it. Philos is give and take. And will continue as long as it's reciprocal. As long as both parties are contributing to love. But folks, listen to me. Agape is all give. It does not demand a response from the beloved. However, it certainly desires a response. Agape will go on loving even if there is absolutely no response. Some of you are thinking, hey, that's kind of like marriage. You know, a lot of people say, well, it's 50-50, meet halfway. Hogwash. Marriage is 100% and expect nothing in return. Right? That's the kind of love we should have. So... Agape will go on loving even if there's no response. The word indicates that there isn't anything you can do to make God stop loving you. His love doesn't depend upon your character or your conduct or even your commitment. It doesn't depend on you at all. This is agape type love. He loves you not because of you are lovable, but because He is love. And He cannot violate his own nature. Therefore, with loving kindness, Jeremiah says, I have drawn you unto myself. Aren't you thankful for this supreme passion? The sovereign Lord has supreme passion. He's so loved in this degree 
Number three, the greatest love story ever told is the story of God's involvement with a sinful people. Whew, what's our condition, people? For God so loved... Now, there are three definitions of the term world found in the Word of God. We have first the created order. It's this vast creation that you see around you. It is... uh, Molecules and atoms and the entire creation physically, physically, visibly, that you can see is the created order. Then there's also world as used in the corrupt world sense. What is that? That's that evil social system of this moral world that is separated from God because of sin. It is where we get that term worldliness. I want to remind you what James said. If you're a friend of the world... Can't be a friend of God. I got one good long amen. Right? Thank you, brother. Isn't that true? James said, and that's what he's referring to, that second definition of world, that system against God. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. He reminds us of that. And then finally, it is the world, or word world used here in this context that speaks of the entire human community that makes up the population of the earth. It is that last named sense, that word is used here for, for world. That word used here, John 3.16. God so loved the world. Think about that. This very world as it is. Not as it ought to be. Not as it will be in the future or once was in the past, but as it is now. You thought about that, folks. God loves, God's love is thus universal. He loves everyone in the world. Here we see the bigness of the heart of God and the scope of the love of our God. It's the world. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Revelation 5.9 affirms this truth that around the throne room of God is going to be present. Every tribe, can you say it? Every tongue, every people. Every nation, red, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in His sight. The universal love of God reaching every people group in the world. No respecter of persons. It's not only universal, it's unconditional. God gave this gift as a demonstration of His love. And His love was displayed to the entire world. Was it not? It's remarkable. To think about. Not because of the vastness of the world, but because of how bad the world is. Remember what we're dealing with? That this greatest love story ever told involves a sinful people. Think about the condition of this world that God loved. I want you to know that God doesn't love you after you believe. This text talks about the fact that He loved you before you believed. That's amazing. That's astounding. To think about that. Look, but God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are rebels against God. Let's don't dumb that down. Let's be honest and read Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 and come away with the real understanding of what the Bible says about our condition. We're alienated from the life of God. We all had gone our own way, away from the Lord, and had returned altogether unprofitable. Our mouth is an open sepulcher. Can't get worse than that. 
That's the condition of mankind apart from Jesus Christ. John 3.16 is not about our loveliness, but about God's love for us. Thank God for it. The text does not say that God loves us present tense now, that we are saved. It says God loved us past tense, before we were saved. God is the one who acts first in salvation. God is the one who loves first in salvation. So we have a sovereign person, a supreme passion, a sinful people, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The greatest love story ever told is a story also of striking provision. What does the text say? That he gave. Now, we like to teach our kids good four-letter words. Here is one. It's called love. But it can rightly be spelled G-A-V-E. If it's biblical love, it is spelt gave. And that's what the Lord God did for us. He gave His only begotten Son. Who is that Son, of course? Well, we just came off Christmas. I hope you should know that. He gave His only begotten Son. Note the progression of two verbs here. Loved and what? It moves to action, does it not? In Scripture, there is a locked arm connection between loving and giving. You may give without loving, but I've got news for you. You cannot love without giving. If it's God's kind of love. The sending forth of the Son of God entails sacrifice, pain on the part of our God. Romans 8.32 echoes this by saying to us that God spared not His own Son. You can actually feel the heartstrings moving on a sovereign God and think back to Abraham who raised the knife to plunge it. Well, actually to cut the throat of his own son. And yet God provided a lamb. So here on the heartstrings of God, when you hear God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all. Just think about for a moment what was involved with that agony. The shame and the spitting. The dying and the death of the cross. That's what God gave. Love moved to action. That's real biblical love. What about this word, KJV, only begotten? Well, your Jehovah Witnesses and your Mormons will stumble over this. The true word is monogenee. Mono meaning, yeah. Gene meaning where you get your English word genes. So really, our genetics. So really what we're dealing with is the one of a kind son. Not created, like the cults say. Anybody that says Jesus was created is a cult. He wasn't created. He was the Son of God for all eternity and came down to our level. Came down and put on human flesh. Became man for us. So we have it captured here. This means God gave His only gene-type Son, the one-of-a-kind Son, or as some translations say, I like it, the unique Son of God. So God gave. Don't you believe that that would be the climax of the love of God? That He would give us His Son? I'd say yes. Praise God for John 3.16. And He gave Him to death. The Bible says death on the cross. In John 3.16, the word gave is actually in the aorist tense verb. What does that mean? It means that 
when God views the incarnation of Christ, He views it as the one-time event. In other words, we view when He gave, He gave Christ to come and be born on earth, leave heaven to be born, to live on earth 33 and one-half years without sin, and then to die on the cross, and then to resurrect, and hallelujah, to, to ascend to the throne. That's the gift that God gave you. That's the love gift that God gave you. The whole ball of wax is in this that He gave. Now, lest you think that God is not just and righteous, I want to remind you to look at the cross. That He gave His only Son. God's righteousness was on display on the cross. If the righteousness of God has ever been on display, it was on display at the cross. Folks, you do understand that there's no approaching this God apart from a mediator. There's no way to approach this God apart from a blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the death of the Lamb. And so, if you wonder if God is righteous and just, just look at Jesus on the cross of Calvary. God is 100% just. And if we get what we deserve, we all get hell. But aren't you so thankful that God had a plan? Not plan B, C, or D. One plan. From the foundation of the world. That the Son of God, in His righteousness, would die on our behalf. So that you could be made righteous. Remember, there's no access to heaven apart from righteousness. And you can't go on yours, I promise you. I've been around some of you, right? If you bottled up every bit of righteousness in this room, it doesn't even come remotely close. Not even a speck compared to the righteousness of God. There's no entrance. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? His holiness and hatred for sin were seen in the severity of the punishment. When Jesus took upon Himself the punishment of our sin, that it demanded, it testifies to the world that God is absolutely and unquestionably righteous. In that regard, folks, you should never doubt the love of God. That God would love so much that He would give the priceless Son of God, the precious Son of God, the one-of-a-kind, unique Son. Why? Because righteousness is expensive. There's no way for us to be righteous apart from that. You were not on the cross. God's own Son hung there. You did not pay the terrible price. Jesus did. That's what Christmas is about. That's what the cross is all about, the God who gave. Charles Spurgeon said that out of the gratitude for God's gift of His Son, it's our duty and our privilege to exhaust all of our lives for Jesus. Isn't that true? Because He gave, we ought to want to exhaust everything in us for the cause of Christ. And, and in that regard, can I take a little excursion? $57,000 this church gave to Lottie Moon. That is awesome. Amazing. I mean, I really believed that Don was lying. Because I knew it hit close to 47, the goal we had. Last year, I think we gave 44, which is amazing. But the fact of the matter is, to hit 57,000, you know what that tells your pastor? We're concerned about souls. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what an uplifting thing for me, your pastor, to see. $57,000. Kyle, you're not going to say amen? amen. <laughs> right? Just think about that. 
percentage-wise in the state of Missouri, regardless of church size, that is amazing. It's not about us getting a certificate in the mail, right, Brother James? And we'll probably get one of those. Top percentage in all of Missouri and the country, for that matter, our church size. That's not what's important. What's important is John 3.16. That, that's why we're doing this as a church body, because we believe and we know that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. And because of the joy that we have in Jesus, we want others to have that same joy. Praise the Lord. Here's another aside. What's that mean for us? Well, as J.D. Greer has, has challenged everybody, who's your one for next year? If that's the greatest gift you could ever get to be saved, then how about sharing that in the, in the next calendar year with at least one person? Who's your one for 2019? I want you to pray about that. That's my challenge to you. Let's get to the end of the year and every one of us, we don't know if they're going to come to Christ or not. That's up to the Lord to save but it's up to us to get the message out there, to go tell. And that's my encouragement to you, every single one of us. So love is a combination of two impulses. You know it? And that's the next thing. It's a simple plan. It's a simple plan. And the reason I say that is that whoever believes in him, love is a combination of two impulses. To give itself for the other and to have the other for itself. Y'all do know that, right? That's so true, even in married life. I mean, I'll hang out with you and all you mess with my wife, I'm going to hurt you. All right? I'm just going to tell you like it is. That just pushes the pastor up over the edge. Why? Because it's, it's not a possessive type love. It is a jealous type love that comes from the heart of God. Because we love that way. Not only is she mine, but I possess her. Right? Nothing wrong with that. That's the God's kind of love. And so here it is. Love is a combination of two impulses. It's to give itself for the other, which we do in marriage. But it's also to have the other for itself. So perfect love is the proper balance between those two impulses. To give and to share for the other, but also to have and to hold for this day forward. Right? And that's what the Lord God does for us. Calvary stands forever as our proof that God was willing to go the full length to give himself. That's the full first impulse of love. And yet, that willingness to give himself is also coupled with the desire to possess. Oh, to possess you and me. Think about that. That you belong to God. That not only did he do what it took to share and willingness to give whatever it took, he also desires to have and to hold. He desires to possess you. And that's why the Bible teaches us that you can't serve God and mammon. Right? You will serve Him. And He is a jealous God. And what belongs to Him is His. And He doesn't want to share you with anything or anybody else. You belong to Him. Whosoever is wonderful, is it not? Whoever... It's a wonderful word in the context of John 3.16. For it indicates something to us. The way of salvation is open and available for all. All sinners are the object of God's love and the recipients to an invitation to salvation. All sinners, all kinds of sinners, all degrees of sinners can be saved. Hallelujah. I don't get one amen from that. I'm going to start my sermon over. There are no racial exclusions. If you think because you're a 
born white, born American, and you've got a monopoly on God. You don't, folks. This doesn't exclude anyone. Social exclusions, no national, no geographical limits, no gender or relational exceptions. And no one is so bad they cannot be saved. And no one is so good that they don't need to be saved. There's another whosoever category in the Bible. And I have to remind you of it. There's only two categories in the world of whoever's. Those who know Christ, whoever believes, and those who do not. And Revelation 20.15 says, And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. These two categories include all the whosoever's who have ever lived on the face of the earth. There are only two categories. Note the simplicity of the response. Whoever believes in him. It does not say whoever works. Whoever has good intentions. Whoever admires Jesus. Faith brings nothing to the table but poverty. Y'all listening? The only thing it brings to the table is emptiness and an understanding that you can't do anything on yourself, by yourself. It's only through Jesus Christ that you can be saved. The text doesn't say that whoever believes in himself. The text doesn't say that whoever believes in his or her service for God. It doesn't even say whoever believes in the sacraments and performs them. The Bible says whosoever believes in Jesus, period. The preposition ace is translated into whosoever believes in Jesus, meaning that faith is directional and locational. It must be in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone in order for you to be saved. It's only in to Jesus Christ that you are saved. In other words, it takes us, it takes us to Christ and enters us into Him. And when this happens, He brings the Holy Spirit to live in us and we are at union with Christ Jesus the Lord. That's true belief. i got to move fast. The greatest love story ever told is the story of a significant prevention. Don't you love this? Should not perish. No prevention, I don't think, could be any more important than this one. Right? Should not perish. What does it mean to perish? Well, it means to die. It means to die spiritually and to be separated from God eternally. Listen very closely, folks. It's not annihilationism. This does not mean you will go out of existence, like some people say. And even take the Bible to twist it in that way. No, there's no such thing as annihilationism. There is an existence for everybody in this building and everybody in this world on the other side. You're going to live eternally, somewhere, forever. That's what the Bible teaches. And according to the Bible, this fiery hell and separation from God is experienced in the God's wrath. And judgment and fiery hell and separation from God and punishment that is absolutely eternal and irreversible. I don't tell you that in a delightful way. I tell you that with a broken heart. See, people think I can just live like I want to live this side of heaven and I can live on this earth and reject Jesus. And when I die, I'll just cease to exist. No, folks. The judgment has just begun. And it's eternal. And it's irreversible. Mm. The possibility of perishing, this text teaches us, is presented as normal. It's expected. It's inevitable. It's the end of mankind. Unless something or someone intervenes. Aren't you thankful for John 3.16? I mean, it presents perishing as the normal end of mankind. 
apart from Jesus, left to our own devices, we will all eventually self-destruct. And that's a harsh reality. We must squarely face this truth. That to run from the love of Christ Jesus the Lord in the gospel is to perish. That's the teaching of holy, the Holy Word of God. To reject Jesus Christ as Lord, as Lord is to perish. John 3.18 says, He that believes not is condemned already. Stop short of reading that verse, but look what it says. Whosoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Folks, there's a hell. It's real. And you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to dumb you and numb you into the fact and thought that a loving God surely would never create a hell. And if there's really a God, then he would never send anybody there. You better not believe the lie of the enemy. You better not believe that. People assume if there is a God, he won't send them to hell. Satan sets you up. For hell, with the seat that perfectly convinces you that hell is no threat. I'm telling you folks, the Bible says there is a hell, and it is a real threat. And the more you reflect on this reality, the more precious John 3.16 ought to be. Praise God for that significant prevention. That we don't perish. We escape eternal punishment. Well, so far we've learned we have a sovereign person. A supreme passion involved with sinful people like me and you gives us a striking provision, a simple plan of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about the sure possession? May have eternal life. Aren't you thankful for that? That we possess eternal life. Notice the words believe and have. They're both present tense verbs. This means that the moment a sinner believes and trusts in Christ and is brought into union, you already have eternal life. Amen. Thank the Lord. It is here, but it's after. It doesn't say, I want eternal life, or I hope I get it, or I'm supposed to have it. It is your possession if you're in Jesus Christ. So eternal life occurs simultaneously with the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is eternal life, by the way? Well, it's the very life of God planted in a human life. That's eternal, that's eternal life. And when you are made alive and you believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are quickened and infused with the life of God throughout your own very life, it's God's own life in you. It is eternal life. So would I have eternal life as my possession? Here's the deal. I have a life that is linked with God now and a life that will be lived out in God's presence for the rest of eternity. Man, I'm telling you folks. Out to make a dead Baptist shout, right? The sure possession, the prevention of hell and eternal separation from God. And we're given a sure possession for all those who believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, the next verse says. You know why? Because we were condemned already. That's clear from human history. Man first sinned in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned and acted foolishly, stepping out from under God's perfect and wise rule and decided that they knew what was best for themselves. God's holding out on us. Surely He doesn't know what is best. And the result of that was condemnation for all mankind. 
They were not only expelled from God's presence in the garden, but the Bible also teaches they were placed under the sentence of death. From that point forward, human history has been a series of funerals. Can anybody in history deny that? All the evolution in the world ain't helping that. All the teaching in the world of the fact that God did not create and we came out of some primordial soup and all that. How do you explain the fact that from all of history it's ended with funerals? How do you explain that? I explain that by the fact that God said you've got the sentence of death and you're going to die. Well, what do we say about that? Well, I say to you that I woke up Sunday morning, last Sunday morning before I preached, I couldn't hear out of this ear. I'm like, boy, this body's breaking down. And then I woke up this week, and this eyeball, eye right here, hurt, on fire, and stuff leaking down here. And like, No, Natalie did not punch me. She thought about it, but she didn't. And I thought to myself, Lord, this body's just breaking down. I mean, for some of you, you suffer way more than I ever thought about with your body. But it's an, it's an understanding that, boy, this thing's corruptible, isn't it? This body that we live in. Listen to Whitmire in the book called The Last Enemy. Here's what he says. You're going to die. That's sobering, isn't it? Take a moment to let that sink in. You're going to die. One morning, the sun will rise and you won't see it. Birds will greet the dawn and you won't hear them. Friends and family will gather to celebrate your life. And after you're buried, they will return to the church for ham and scalloped potatoes. <laughs> and they will. Miss Mary Bennett will be serving up that meal, right? She's going to do that in glory, right? Soon your job and your favorite chair and spot on the team will be filled by someone else. The rest of the world may pause to remember. It will give you a moment of silence if you're rich or well-known. But then they'll carry you on. They will carry on as they did before you ever arrived on this earth. You know, folks, the reality is we needed something we could not supply ourselves. And no amount of human ingenuity or human cunning could ever bring salvation. Y'all know that, don't you? We like to make a big deal out of human accomplishments. That's all we see. It's in billboards and, and lighted signs and everything else. We like to make a big deal out of it. We like to say, look how far man has come. But there's one thing. Uh, that we're not closer to solving. There's a huge dilemma. It's the greatest dilemma. Our need for salvation over sin and death. You can no more save yourself than you could birth yourself. Do you know that's exactly what Jesus said to Nicodemus? You must be born again. And Nicodemus ran with that. How in the world can I enter into my mother's womb a second time? You can't! You cannot save yourself. No matter what you do, you can't do it. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus this. We were drowning in a sea of sin. And we needed someone to come and rescue. God sent forth his son into this world. No mere man could do this. Only the God man could do it. The one of a kind, unique son of God. Now here's the deal, folks. On this day, you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what I would ask of you. Don't leave without trusting Jesus. Don't leave without putting your faith in this kind of God. Amen? Amen? Father, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
satisfaction. Father, you were satisfied. The God of eternity was satisfied with the substitutionary death of Christ. My death couldn't do it. Billy Graham's death couldn't do it. Nobody's death in the world could do it other than the God-man. And you are satisfied. And if we come to Jesus and trust Him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent and believe. If we turn, if we move from that state of unbelief to the state of belief in Jesus Christ only for salvation, we turn away from sin and self and trust Jesus only, the Bible tells us that you, Heavenly Father, are satisfied. Lord, may that happen today. Lord, for believers, God, we've been given such an incredible gift. Lord, let us exhaust ourselves for the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. We'll be glad we did when we see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.